hello. I'm uh, just popping in before the podcast starts proper because I feel like this is the first episode that we've ever done uh, of Directors Uncut where I have to sort of flag up the upcoming content. We've had episodes where we've talked about very left-leaning and anti-government stances because let's be honest, I don't make any bones about this being a very left-leaning podcast. However, in this edition... Uh, the second movie that we talk about sort of around 35 minutes on. Um, there's a part there which requires a content warning for themes like uh, suicide and self-harm and depression. So if those are problematic areas for you, if those are areas which will cause concern for you, um, this is me just giving you that friendly warning. It's nothing too bad, but I won't be doing my due diligence as the host of this podcast uh, without mentioning it and bringing it up. But nonetheless, I think this is an excellent episode regardless of me needing to do this. So I will see you on the other side. Rob and welcome back to Directors Uncut. We are a podcast that puts filmmakers from all corners of the globe onto a huge list that covers everything from crime classics to avant-garde mind-benders. Then we pick a name from a huge bank of directors to chat about their work through two films and to do so I am joined by a rotating cast of guest hosts. Um, first up, Amber, first time on a podcast. Hello there. Hi, thank you for having me. Anytime, anytime. Um, also, Ben, Returning. Oh, hello. I didn't know you were coming to me next, so I was kind of sat there, <laughs> looking a bit glum. Uh, hello, how's it going? Yeah. All right. Not bad, not bad. And uh, Graham, Graham's back hello. too. Hello there. Yes, um, let's just jump straight into it. This is uh, part two of Shinya Sukamoto. Um, last time we talked about uh, Tetsuo Iron Man and Vital. And before we sort of jump into the movies... Um, that we're talking about this week. I just thought an open sort of opportunity, if there's anything in his filmography that stands out that we aren't talking about, either in this episode later or in the earlier edition, that sort of stands out from his filmography, really, because this double episode, you could literally have picked any of the movies from his filmography and you'd have been golden, really. (laughs) You could have picked any of his movies, and for a while in the email thread, it looked like we were about to do that. Well, it's an open. I would, I, I would have done it as well. <laughs> you know, I would have sat there and gone, "Give me all of them. I will watch them now." Uh, Tetsu was the big one, now, isn't it? It's what put him on the map for a lot of people. So, are we Tetsuo fans? I would say it's in my like top five films of all time. I think. Ooh, yeah, okay. it, it, it rewired my brain, not in like the best way, but it, it definitely <laughs> changed some shit. Up there. <laughs> it's also something you kind of open up to your therapist about, yeah. is it? Oh, I love this film. It's like, mm, we need to talk. I had a funny yeah, experience yeah. of that. I mean, I watched when Channel 4 was actually experimenting with being good. I don't know when it was, some point in time. There was, I was like channel flicking and caught the, the drill penis bit. And nothing out of context as a 13 year old boy or so or something like that <laughs> can put you up a movie quicker i guess you see this is where i'm so much older than everybody else in this conversation because i had it on vhs that's how old i am um but not but you see this is the thing we especially with tetsu and the iron man at that point in the late 80s japanese cinema was very much still kind of holding on to that idea of uh, Kira Kurosawa, uh, uh, Oshima, Shoei Imamura, people like that. And it was great, and that's wonderful cinema, but it it was kind of forgotten. Hong Kong had kind of really come into its place, and outside of anime, Japanese cinema was kind of very much in the background, but it was that for an international market very much brought Japanese cinema back to the focus of Tetsuya the Iron Man. Because I remember getting on VHS, because uh, I was kind of in just getting into East Asian cinema in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Akira was a big deal, that kind of thing. So getting Tetsu and watching it, I was already already a fan of David Cronenberg, and this was just sort of like, 
oh, this is this is awesome. What the heck is this? And then showing it to friends and saying, there is something wrong with you, Benjamin. You need to go and see something. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And then, but it must have been a bit later on because I, I remember seeing Body Hammer not far after that as well, not long after that. And again, just being like, this is crazy. This is just everything else turned up to 11 and in color this time and in widescreen, not in 16 millimeter. So, yes. Um, any other things from his filmography that stand out for you? Because I know he's been prolific, not necessarily prolific, but he's, he's been ever-present, I guess. I mean, for, for myself, apart from the films that we're obviously we're talking about, Bullet Ballet is, is one of my favourites of his. It's, um, it's still kind of very much in that sort of like Tokyo Fist, where, where he was trying to get out of that violence, but it was still very much there. And Bullet Ballet is, is one of those. But if you want just sort of like claustrophobic nightmare for 45 minutes it's one of his shorter films i know it was on the third window box set they did a little while ago haze it's 45 minutes and it's him being stuck between two walls and for 45 minutes and i i'm not claustrophobic uh, but i was after that <laughs> it, it's it's i mean it's, it's films honestly i mean there's one or two duds but yeah no as a director oh, okay he's, okay he's up there What's yeah, his duds? What, what, what is duds? Oh, no, that's not fair. Hang on. Well, you you set it up, so <laughs> you can't. You better not say Hiroko. I'm just going. The pressure is on now, isn't it? Oh, it is. You see, no, because I'm not going to. You know what? I'm not going to bad mouth him. I'm not going to bad mouth him at all. He can do what he wants. He, he's earned that Excellent. right. Um, ben just had know, this I'm... weird moment where he thought uh, he thought he Sukumoto directed Forrest Gump for a minute, but it's fine. <laughs> okay, he's cleared I would watch that, that up. Though. <laughs> I would absolutely watch that. Um, all right, I'm, I'm not really the biggest fan. Well. See, I'm in the minority. I'm not the biggest fan of Tokyo Fist. I like Tokyo Fist, but it's the most intimidating yeah. movie I've ever seen. Yeah, it, it's... Um, it's like being stuck oh, in a yes. of your body. It's really horrible. <laughs> this is the one I was thinking of, actually, when, when I was when I said he's had the odd thing. It was The Bullet Man, the third of the Tetsuo films, uh, which is the one where he went over to the US to make it, and it, it just doesn't work. It doesn't work at all. Um, a couple of his earlier films as well, um, Denchuko, The Adventures of Denchukozo. He's got an odd sense of humour. As a lot of Japanese films do, but he, he does have an odd sense of humour. Isn't that the one where he uh, it's out of a precursor, a Tetsuo, in which a young man has a pylon out of his back and he starts fighting with vampires for the future of vamp- uh, Tokyo? Yes. Great. Uh, that's the one, yeah. It, it's it's another one of his shorter <laughs> films, but it, it's, yeah. It, it's it's it, it, You can see the genesis there for things like Tetsuo and, and a lot of the films he would, and, and he kind of get tied into that whole cyberpunk idea for a while. Um, but you, you can see the genesis of it, but it, it doesn't quite work, but it's one of his okay. earliest films, you know? So it's, I'm not going to be like, oh, I'm not sure if there's any sort of territory left of mine there, but Amber, <laughs> Graham, anything that stands out for yourselves? Um, I'm definitely not that as well versed, but again, I, I got to give some love to Haruko because I, I remember watching that and I was like, whenever t- every time someone says like, oh, what the fuck, Japan? I'm like, yeah, okay, it's not that crazy. But then I watched Hiroko and I was like, yeah, okay, what the fuck? <laughs> I just love it. And I love that, like, love, I love the translation of Yokai as goblin because I've never heard that before. And it doesn't really make any sense, but I just love it. It's adorable. I've not seen that one, but if I'm correct, isn't that the one which is effectively his take on sorts of evil, dead like horror? Mm hmm. With uh, frying pans. Yeah. <laughs> like a, a portal to hell underneath a high school. Yes, of yeah, yeah, yeah. Horror. Mm-hmm. I think I need to say that now. You do, you do, you do. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it, it is a good one. It's, it's probably one of his most commercial films. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's such a weird statement, let's be fair. Well, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't watch it and, like, th- automatically think, oh, this is a Sukumoto film. Like, it's it's mm. not it's not got that, like, nihilistic hell on earth tone that a lot of his other work does it's it's yeah. fun it's cute wow that's the weirdest adoption of the word cute i've ever heard but i'll take it i'll take it graham anything well not very much really i think i've only seen one full sukumoto film and it is one of the ones we'll be covering today uh, a large part of the reason why i hopped on this is that i've always been sukumoto curious 
are, as as I say on my online dating profile, and. Um, <laughs> And I've always wanted to delve a bit deeper. You know, I am a huge Cronenberg fan. I do love a lot of the directors who are normally compared to him. I think I have probably seen more of him as an actor than I have uh, as a director, particularly that beautiful, really genuinely heartfelt turn he gives in uh, Martin Scorsese's film Silence as the young thief who gets converted to Christianity. Uh, I think that's a great performance. He is a fantastic actor, not to change the tone too much, but the first time I saw him, I think, was, um, I can't remember the name of the character he plays, but in Ichi the Killer, he's mm. a pivotal role in that, which is a very, very different film. To- <laughs> but that's, his, but that's his range, man. If you can be in Ichi the Killer and silence, you've got range. <laughs> and that's yeah. it. I mean, especially those, I mean, Takeshi Miike is one of those, they're quite close in the sense because they're kind of linked via uh Shinya Sukamoto's brother uh who's also an actor he was in like Dead or Alive he's um, the uh Tokyo oh, Fist isn't he he's the um yes he the is boxer um, Tokyo Fist I will remember his name in a moment or I could just look it up like everybody Koji Sukamoto there you go yes. if only there was a tool that told us everything in the world ever <laughs> um yeah, so how they met was actually at Koji's wedding as well. So it, it's kind of, and then during the film of uh, Tokyo Bullet, he helped, he let uh, Takeshi Miike use some of his sets and things like that. Uh, <laughs> there's a story as well where uh, Takeshi Miike kind of had to, he went in, got to use the set for a day and did 80 setups. Brilliant. He came back to go and say thank you to Sukumoto san and it was very much, hang on, are you still on the same shot? It was like, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like, okay. I cannot compete with him. <laughs> okay, so that leads us to the two movies that we're going to be talking about today. Um, A Snake in June and Kotoko. So we do this chronologically. So we'll start with, I think it was 2004, A Snake in June. Or two. Or two, because it was around the era of Tartan Asian Extreme. Yes. Um, one of their big sort of titles. Um, this is a loaded question whenever you talk about a Sukumoto or a film, but I'm assuming somebody can, can try and feel a way through what is a snake in June about? <laughs> well, it's, it's, in, in many ways, it's got a very simple plot, hasn't it? It's about a married couple who were in a rut. Uh, they're looking to spice up their marriage, but they are, are both too fearful and cosseted in their uh, unhappy lifestyles to do that. And as there is in so many films, there is an outside instigator, a trickster figure played by Sukumoto himself, who comes in and, and gives them what they want in a way that they weren't expecting. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um Amber, feelings on this one? Um, I love this film, and I think there's something really interesting about Sukumoto in like the films of his that I've seen. He has he takes on a really interesting he has a really interesting look at like gender and like power play and roles of gender. Um, something I always think about this film is that it's very much focused is very much about the male gaze, and it's both misogynistic and anti misogynistic at the same time, and. I really like that. I think David Lynch is another director who does that really well. Um, kind of like, it's kind of like in um, Sion Sono's tag where the point of the film is to call out like pervs and otaku, but the way that he does it is by being a massive pervert. Um, so that's kind of like what I love about uh, Snake of June. And I love how it looks, of course. Like, oh yeah. yeah it's just blue. stunning. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I remember when I first watched it, I was like, I have never seen anything like this. It makes me feel like, Depressed as hell. I love it. That's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's quite something, um, Ben. Yeah, no, blue is the color, and it really is. It's blue it is. by color, blue by nature. That film. It, it's. Uh, I was kind of touched on a lot of the things I was going to cover with regards to the male gaze, and certainly how it uh, kind of 
kind of back alley accepted in Japan. It's women are still very much see. I mean, it's kind of changing now, but it's still very much seen as second class citizens. The the idea of a career woman is kind of like no, 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 no. I mean, I I know we've kind of brought up in the past where, like, with Hong Kong actresses, they'll star in five films and all of a sudden get married and retire. And and it's kind of like that idea that it's still a male dominant. I'm trying trying to keep my cat out of the way. Get out of it, Lennon. Oh God, he's not. (laughs) Oh, threw it across Uh, the room. That's so harsh. <laughs> He's giving me the evil eyes now. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, no, I mean, this is just dripping. And there's a certain tragedy to it because while she is being coerced into these situations, there's a kind of a relief there as well. But it, it doesn't dwell on it because she's being tortured by it. But she's not getting any satisfaction from at home. Um, so this kind of gives something to her, even if it's unwanted. And this is kind of where Sukumoto really comes in. He, he puts in a lot of these complexities where it's kind of like, oh. And then obviously there's the tragic side, which we'll get on to. Well, that is, the, the, just to pick that up there, that idea of does she or doesn't she want this, that mm. is something that could be quite incendiary in a lot of contexts. Yeah. And what I think is really brilliant about Snake of June is that it it pushes you into considering it metaphorically. You know, I think that's a very harsh thing, hard thing to do in a lot of ways. I think people are very literal with how they approach films a lot of the time today. But well, media literacy is dead. probably the worst it's been in decades. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah. But if you're to view the character that Sukamoto plays as, as a liberating force, and he's not just that, and the film does examine both sides of what he's doing, but there are, there are times when you're asked to believe that he is doing something that really sets this woman free. If you're to believe that, you can't believe that he literally exists. If this guy literally existed, he's a stalker, he's a voyeur, he's a blackmailer. You, you have he, to view him. And, 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 and let's approach it from the Sukumoto level. He also has a hose for a penis. He, he is also, as a friend of mine who saw this film said, he is also Dr. Coctopus. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, <Not> yeah. <laughs> but it's not like... It, for some reason, it is communicated perfectly clearly that this guy is not quite real and i think the fact that he's played by the director is part of this that he's like the omniscient god who is looking down at these characters he created and said all right you can't get there on your own but i know what you want and i'm going to step into your story and push you into being the people you want and I think that is so you know the western equivalent of this is something like 50 shades of gray which is can't it can't communicate the fact that it needs to be a fantasy at all. And that's why, you know, you have people who read that book and try BDSM and end up in casualty straight <laughs> afterwards because there, there's no way that it has of communicating the sort of the metafiction that a lot of sexual fantasies rely on, which is that, you know, obviously if this was reality, it would be horrible, but it's a fantasy. You know, and isn't that liberating that we can talk about things as being something that only has to exist in this kind of lawless realm of the imagination? I do find the way it does that really fascinating. Well, no, I was going to pick up because the, the problematic idea with that, with regards to giving her what she wants, because then ultimately we come back to that scene where she's in the shop, she's buying the uh, the adult entertainment. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's called Director's Uncut. That's not sugarcoat. Ah, right. I'm buying a dildo. Um, there we go. But it's and where it is, and she's getting questioned by the men. It's like, oh, you're a randy one, aren't you? Hey, hey, hey. And it's kind of like, wow. No, hang on. This, this is not kind of the best way to approach it. It's like, I, I say to a lot, and especially men, we, we never talk about this and we never call each other out on this kind of thing at all. It's, it's kind of that idea of we need to be policing ourselves and the fact that he can only give her what she wants by making her fulfill her own dreams. Mm. It's problematic. Absolutely. But it's also raises a question in an interesting way, especially when it turns to tragedy because, uh, or tragedy, as I was trying to say, it's, 
because the husband doesn't view her as a sexual partner for a lot of that film. She, she is just kind of, he's, his character is a clean freak, isn't he? There's many sequences mm. where he's really into the fact that he's cleaning something. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of nondescript. He's a dull guy, and I think that's maybe one of the things that makes it feel nicer. I think if this if they had more serious marital problems, it might look a bit glib to say that sexual liberation can sort this out, but. Their, their main marital problem is that he's just a dull guy, and that's quite cute. It's a little touch of sitcom in the middle of the the robot penis madness. Yes, Amber. <laughs> I know they're kind of went. I need to realise that every time I say a phrase like robot penis madness, that kills the conversation for oh, at I least. I love it. Minutes. I love it. I think there's a lot to be said in this film about images and being seen versus being objectified and watched because it's not until the husband it's not until Shigehiko sees um his wife photographed until he jerks off to her so it's like the minute that he sees her as an as an image a flat image where where that another man is photographic photographic photographing (laughs) that's that's what turns him on you know it's not having the living breathing wife in the home with him every day it's the flat image and, you know, he even gets annoyed. He's like, I want to see all of her. Obviously, he wants this, like, visually perfect wife to the point where he's willing to see her die beautiful rather than have her image tainted. And I, I, always, think, I always think it's really interesting that Tsukamoto casts himself as the, the photographer in this case because it's almost like that very obvious male gazy rain sequence where we're supposed to be like, oh, this is her sexual liberation. To me, it doesn't read like that at all. It reads as, as male fantasy and male fantasy from a filmmaker who Tsukamoto with his big phallic symbol camera is just giving it all that. So it's it's really interesting to me to think that the husband, you know, it, and we get that very obvious voyeuristic scene with the strapped on cameras on the face. I think, you know, I think so if Tsukamoto does one thing well, it's quite an obvious and interesting metaphor. Um, but yeah, I always, I like, after I watch it, I'm always left like, is it liberating? Is it actually liberating? Or is it just male is it female sexuality can that ever truly be reclaimed under a male gaze and i don't know i just i love it because it doesn't tell me yes or no and that's kind of what i take from it he's actually kind of pointing the finger back at men and saying Mm -hmm. no you have no right to do this you don't know what's right for it and so back off you know and this is kind of where it becomes funny so when we're talking about robot penis he's he's making it so like extra large and it's kind of like look at this look at me and my manhood mm-hmm. which is kind of very much amongst toxic masculinity you are judged by the size of your penis and to be honest it goes further than that he chalks the husband and covers him with black ink mm-hmm. he he's mm-hmm. not a subtle man sucker mortal it's very male savior isn't it it's like i'll i'll take her back and i'll give her the sexual liberation she wants and i'll choke you with my big dick because you're not man enough and, you know, she never asks for any of this, I would just like to point out. She was quite no. happy living her repressed life, um, as a lot of women do. But, yeah, I don't, I never know where I land on it, whether it's actually like a liberating tale or whether it's a warning tale of like, and especially in Japan where like pornography is such a whole weird, weird thing that you would need decades to go into. Um, having lived in Japan and oh, been a woman in Japan is a, an interesting experience, to say the least. Um, but yeah, lots there to be said about images and voyeurism. And I like that it kind of, which I won't go into yet, but that goes with Kotoko a lot as well. They're like a perfect double feature. I think one of the things that makes it so ambiguous is that it's trying to critique pornography using the, I don't want to say toolkit, but here we are, using the toolkit of pornography, using the standard plot devices of pornography, the, as you say, the woman stripping off in the rain, these kind of standard pornographic images and saying, you know, are, are these things irretrievably tainted? Are they just tacky? by definition of is there something we can take out of them and use them towards different ends and i think any time that's done in a movie that's interesting to me but doing it with a genre this reviled is extra fascinating 
And it's that dehumanizing element as well that the still image has or the pornographic movie has. You're not seeing the person underneath. And this is why where it goes to, certainly inside the last third of the film, with the revelation um, that she has cancer, spoiler, Mm. um, it's that's where it kind of gets into because then it's trying to tap into the humanized area of that idea. And it's, so it's kind of like, yes, here's this still image. Oh, and it's sexy. and it's, uh, But when you put a stamp on that, because I'm always reminded, like, kind of don't like bringing this film up, but it's a bit like that moment in Fight Club where you got the cancer victim asking for sex mm-hmm. and nobody mm-hmm. wanting sex with her. Yeah. And how kind of sad that is. It's all like, it's, it's such a basic human need. Mm-hmm. And yet, this is one of the few times where she can't even give it away. It's one of those things, isn't it? It reminds me, again, to bring up Cronenberg, of the way that he uses that link between sex and death or sex and danger in Crash. It's like, okay, you think that danger is sexy. (laughs) How about this? How about James Spader ramming his car into a wall? And I think it's it's the same thing with The Snake of June. It's very easy to say that death and danger is sexy when it's safely packaged away in the context of an erotic thriller. But when you talk when the death is is cancer suddenly that's a very different thing, even though, you know, cancer is something that more of us will have to live with and deal with than anything that happens in a Paul Verhoeven film. True. Yes. Yes. Um, the phrase earlier was mentioned, Hiroko the Goblin is uh, his most uh, mainstream. Mm. I think you can make a case of this for a certain extent, at least. Um, I think the first 30 minutes, the first sorts of, interaction between Sukamoto and uh, the woman where he's he's guiding her through this, this shop and he's taking her from toilet to toilet and just that sensation there that the little cuts he does to the crowd and them laughing as they're walking by. He, I can't speak as a woman because I'm not a woman, but when movies do that, when they explain that, when they put a vision to that of the worry of a woman walking through a city centre, a crowded city centre full of men. I think he's done a really stellar job in that that 30-minute sequence. Oh, yeah. sorry. I, didn't I, I, feels, I feel so anyway. Woman, I was like, yes, I, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And I, I love that scene because you, you can feel like her discomfort and the objectification of her body. And it's not just men that are like gawking mm. at her as well. It's it's very mm. much like women too. Um, but, you know, you can her pulling that skirt down. She's very obviously uncomfortable in it. And I know a lot of people think this film is sexy. I don't think I do because, like, I know people call it an erotic thriller and, you know, it is all about, it's not all about, but, you know, there is a lot about power and BDSM, like we said. I don't know if I find it sexy. I find it sad. Um, Mm. And I find it sad when she's in a crowd, like, very obviously uncomfortable. Um, Maybe I'm just, you know, vanilla, not to kink shame anyone (laughs) who gets (laughs) onto this film. But, yeah, I don't know. I I found it profoundly sad, gloomy. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's a universal feeling, though, isn't it? So that sense of judgment, that that uh, that soul crushing in a monologue that second guesses us every time. So why are they laughing? They might not even be laughing at you, but you don't know that. And it's that sense of shame that comes along with it. Am I doing something to be sh- ashamed of? And in reality, no. But yet we still have these uh, societal standards that which we all must abide by. I mean, fortunately, my kink is having a triangular camera strapped to my face. So, man, whoa. I know, I've seen your dating profile. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I I know what you feel. I I also don't find it sexy, but I am constantly aware that this is imagery a lot of the time Mm. that is used in movies to signify sexiness. And I find that push and pull is one of the most fascinating things about that. I think it's very easy to make a film about sexism or a film about objectification that is just that avoids that kind of imagery completely. I think that is generally how people do it. But I think there's it's again that kind of experiment, a sense with it, a sense of, all right, you like this, but what about now? What if I do this to it? That's what gives it its tension. That's what makes it really interesting, I think. Yes. And then one thing I'd like to bring up here, it's not really set up, but I think it has to be talked about with Sukamoto is the man is all business. And um, this is 77 minutes long. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, there's not an ounce of fat on it, really. But, I mean, we've been talking about it for her, like 15, 16 minutes now, and I don't think it needs to be any longer. He's a very economical storyteller. Yeah, he gets down to business. Yeah, I mean, this is one of his, I wouldn't say longer, I think Kotoko's 80-odd minutes, if I remember. Kotoko's mm. um, 91 minutes. He usually, he brings them in usually on or around 90 minutes. It's rare that he goes over. I'm just having a look through some of his other films. It's just uh, an aspect that I really appreciate. I mean, with movies getting longer and longer, this is guy, he, he's plumbed the depths of depravity in about 75 minutes, pretty much, throughout <laughs> his career. And I respect that a great deal, I'll be honest. Yeah, I mean, his, his, all of his movies I've seen have given me a panic attack. Like, and I think that's like, because they're, they're so short, they're so quick, and so much happens, and they're so intense, and then you're just left like, what the fuck do I do now? <laughs> yeah, basically. Um, but before we wrap up for the um, second movie, is there anything that we haven't mentioned about uh, A Snake of June that anybody would like to bring up? Um, Amber? Um, just, I know we've talked a lot about how it looks, but just the rain, the raininess. I feel like there's not like a lot of films off the top of my head that I think make rain, make rain almost like a character in itself. Um, but I just, I love how this film sounds. And, you know, that, that Japanese rainy season is horrible. It's like there's literal like electricity in the air and it, it does make you feel like insane. And there's that great quote from him that I can't remember exactly, but he says something like the Japanese rainy season, like it moves inside of you like a snake. Um, and I just, I just love that. So I, I love how it looks. I love how it sounds. I love how it makes me feel like, like damp and sweaty. <laughs> it's horrible rainy movie yeah. i mean it's a, it's a very obvious metaphor again he doesn't mess around with his metaphors you know like a lot of gushing water coming out in a film about sexual tension like there's there's no prize i mean him and Moore has done a cruder version of that so he's, he's not the most uh <laughs> he, he's not the most unsubtle japanese director with that theme well uh let's just look at other movies in his filmography you know, people look for gay subtexts in a lot of movie. With Tetsuo, he batters you across the head no, of it oh, as, yeah. <laughs> as both lead characters literally evolve into a giant metallic penis, which rushes through the, the back streets of Tokyo. So, yeah, he's not a subtle man mm-hmm. in any way, shape, or form. We love him for it. <laughs> uh, Graham, uh, Ben, anything else about A Snake of June stands out? I would just like to quickly note that when I said at the start I've only seen one of his uh, films as a director in full, it was this film. Everything that follows is new. Okay. Oh, you're in for a treat, mate. You are in a for horrible, a horrible, horrible treat. Yes. I mean, I've said about it, I've said about him before. He, he's. I wish more directors were as brave as he is. Mm-hmm. So, like that. I mean, yes. All right. He's got the uh, luxury of independence, and he's a, a trusted name. And say, kind of, some of his acting work has paid for a lot of it, and he owns a lot of his own equipment anyway. Um, but yeah, can I just put? Um, as I say, there there is a, a tragedy to the film as well. As I say, he's, he's trying to set up that idea of being sexy, of it being kind of the male gaze upon this, but that tragedy just kind of punches through it all, and it's it's not fun. It, 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 a few of his films are not fun at all. But if you're going into this expecting, like, yeah, you know, kind of like this idea that you're going to get this really perverted kind of sexy idea, you're not. It's not going to happen. And and you know what? Actually, I hope some people do go into it like that and they kind of have their idea kind of flipped on that because, you know, I mean, you might look at somebody like uh, Asuka Kurosawa and she is a very attractive lady, but the way she is played, it's such a tragic story for her that I was just sort of like, yeah, no, if, if you come out of this as sort of like a box of Kleenex, then there's something wrong with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Don't sort yourself out. Oh, um, actually, no, don't talk yourself out. That's bad. <laughs> and check your internet history. <laughs> yes. One of those people. Yeah. Definitely. Clear the cash. Chris! Puppy's stopping! Puppy's stopping, Chris! 
Oh, you have a little foe. Excuse me. You are going to pick that up. Oh, well, I haven't. I've... Chris. This is a site of natural beauty and geographical interest. I think you need to sort that out. I didn't do that. Uh, you need to pick it up. I, I, can't, well, I can't. Why, why can't you? Well, I haven't got the proper things to do. Why didn't you bring the proper things with you if you're out with your dog? Well, I did bring the proper things, but I'm not having a very good day. Chris. Oh. Good morning. He's told me I'm going to pick that up with my fingers. Well, a dog does a shit. You can't do much about that, mate. You can pick it up and you take it away with you. Well, I would have the bags, but they're in the bloody car that you've left drunk outside some pub that we can't... We don't even know where the See, pub you know, is. I know we where the car is. No, you don't. I do. I know we where it is. We are lost, Chris. I know where it is. Lost. I know it. Look, 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 I'm sorry, but if you don't pick up this excrement immediately, then I'm going to have to inform the National Trust. Actually, do you know what? I don't think you are sorry, mate. I don't think you're sorry either. Did he touch you? What? No. Wasn't concentrating. Have a think. Can you remember everything? Uh, yes, yes, he did touch me. Oh, this is preposterous. What else did he do? Ethan. Details. Trying to put puppies, balls. Okay, so we're picking a director for the next episode, and the one we're going to be picking it for is for season two finale. And I'm just going to completely abandon the random conceit. We're just going to mix it up and see how it goes from episode to episode. So for the uh, next episode, the last of season two, we're going to go with Ben Waitley. Mm-hmm. Nice. So, uh, As someone who lives in Brighton, I'm very proud that he is one of us. <laughs> he's, he's a great filmmaker. Oh, he's come a long way since Brighton. Uh, what was his, I can't remember the name of his first movie, but I remember it explicitly, and it's just such a long way since um, the beginnings. That was called, uh, 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 Down Terrace, Down Terrace. Such a, and that's a very gritty and small and dirty little crime movie, but yeah, he's mm. he's a big fish now in the British film industry. Yeah, he's 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 got some great work. I mean, Kill List is is amazing. I really enjoyed In the Earth, and I can't wait to see what he does with the Meg too. It seems like a really odd project for him, but I'm excited yeah. to see what he can do with Statham. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm a big fan of Kill List. Um, In the Earth wasn't actually so much my cup of tea. I appreciated what it did, and I thought it was a beautiful looking film, really well acted, really well written, and everything. But it just wasn't necessarily my sort of vibe yeah, but I, I can appreciate i can appreciate the talent behind it for sure it is a required test that one but um if we were going to do movies for well you are going to do movies in this episode but what would your picks be um favorites maybe i guess sleeper one that pe- not enough people have seen uh my favorite mm-hmm. sightseers um good sleeper one would be um uh, what's it called colin bursted um that yeah. one, you know, that was new, originally yeah, going to be called. Think, yeah. yeah, it was originally going to be called Colin Uranus because it's based on Coriolanus, apparently. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, Liz. I've only seen Kill List and In the Earth. My my oh, knowledge so. is very limited, I'm afraid. Yeah, I mean, Kill List, Kill List sort of has to be there, and then I would probably go with Sightseers because it's a different tonal mm-hmm. to to Kill List. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether this is a popular opinion or not, but two of my favourites are Free Fire and High Rise, and I know they simply get wailed on by a lot them. of people. Don't, don't uh, I I'm in the wrong audience then. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot that he did them. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's fine, that's fine. I'll just have to really champion them and make everybody else do them. It's my podcast, I can do the, the terrible <laughs> ones if I want to. <laughs> I know that um, that our friend Caitlin would absolutely love to be on that. Episode. She's already outside. She already heard him say that it would in Ben Wheatley and Egg. She's already ready to go. <laughs> I, I know that. Uh, <laughs> I believe she's wearing her Kill List T-shirt today. I saw her to her. So. Yeah. That was such a hard movie for me, Kill List. Because the first time I watched it, it was like, what is this? But I couldn't stop thinking about it. It, mm-hmm. just, it burrows away deep into your head. And the more I watched it, the more I fell in love with it. It was just... Such an odd first experience, that one, Kill List. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that was the... I don't know whether it happened before or after. Oh, I, I'm mentioning this and I forgot his name entirely. The Irish actor who was in it, whose name was completely... Michael Smiley. Yeah, I think that was the movie where everybody went, Michael Smiley's a bit good, isn't he? <laughs> oh, we've known that for years, anyone who's watched British sitcoms and stuff. 
Oh yeah, but like making the leap over to movies, and, this, and I shouldn't be doing this with names of actors. It's the same with the lead actor as well. That was another sort of moment where everybody realised that Neil Maskell. Neil Maskell's not just those London gangster geezer movies. He's like a really, really good actor too. Yeah, yeah. he's he's incredible. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Bull's a, a great performance so by him. Quite kind cool. of it cocks it up a little bit in the. Final five minutes, but before nope. that, yeah, it's, nope, it's, nope, nope. It's the final five minutes is excellent. <laughs> it's <laughs> chilling. Really I'm with you, Rob. I'm, I'm, I wasn't a massive fan of the ending, but otherwise, I thought it was, yeah, brilliant film. So that leads us to the second half of the show in which we're talking about 2011's Kotoko. Again, a very simple plot, but also not quite so simple a sum up. So has anybody take a, a stab at Kotoko? Anybody? Please don't leave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, it's a film about mental illness, isn't it? It's a film about a woman uh, called Kotoko who... Uh, her child is taken away from her because she has violent, intrusive thoughts. And it's about her quest to get her child back and also to, to live with the um to live with the condition she has. I mean, plot wise, again, it is very simple, but treatment wise it really isn't. No, did it ruin your day when you watched it? That's the important part. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it did. Yeah, I mean, I've had one absolute day ruiner this year on this podcast, haven't I, with the cremator? Uh, mm, but I'd did. seen the cremator before. I knew exactly what to expect from that. But this was, I, yeah, there were there were things in here that I really did not expect. Yeah, we'll get to that in, in due course, I suspect. But um, Amber, feelings on Kotoko? Uh, um, well, it's a profoundly, profoundly upsetting film. Um, and in a way that when I first watched it, I, I could not, I could not, like, for at least three days, was like, I cannot ever, ever watch that film again. And then I did yesterday, so... Yeah, <laughs> but sorry about no, that. No, I love it. I mean, I loved it. That's the thing. I finished watching it, and I was like, "That's the best film I've ever seen." I never want to see it again. Um, it, it's there's only like another time I can think of a, a male director who has so captured this this specific. I don't want to state say hysteria because that's you know that's bioessentialist nonsense. It doesn't exist. But there's a specific woman madness that um he's caught really perfectly here and david lynch is another director who captures it really well um but it's just an agonizing horrific panic attack of a movie that you know goes to these really adorable cutesy places and then fucking blows them up in your face to the point where there's a couple of times in this film where i'm like oh my fucking god like Sorry for swearing so much. Oh no, no! I mean, sometimes it's warrants it. Yeah. Well, you know, you know exactly like the scenes I'm talking about, and you know, and it's just constant. It's just never ending. And the actress who plays Kotoko, like Coco, the I think she's a J-pop singer. She is. Well, she's more of an alternative kind of thing, sort of like uh, Fiona Apple. What Um, a performance! Like the only the only equivalent I can think that rivals her is like Isabella Gianni in possession. Yes. Like those two, I don't know how they came out of it. Like with their sanity intact, because this is just something else. And Sukamoto is also great in it. He's amazing too. Yeah. I think oh, you yeah. touch upon the, the sort of the, the nature of it. Cause the idea here is that she sees two visions, one's real and one's not. And she has these violent visions that one of them is going to attack her. And the way that escalates it, you know, it's Sukumoto, so he's not going to sort of, you know, gently walk around it. He's going to attack that sort of concept head on. And I've got no shame in saying it, that one of those escalations in this is one of the few times where I actually shouted out loud and swore at the movie for what it did. Because it's quite I a have thing. never seen that in a movie before. Never. Right. No one's ever crossed that line in any movie that I've seen. Not not on, like, on... Because I was like, I was like, oh, it's going to be applied. It's going to be off screen. No. Mm. He built a head and then blew it up. Yeah, he just not, does it. Not only a head, a baby's. Yes. Because yeah, there's these um, 
sort of military garbed men that appear throughout it, sort of all in the body armor and with like have a shotgun and yeah, that's that's where he goes. <laughs> Enjoy your day after that. Yeah, that's as if you I'm weren't saying. already like on the edge from Kotoko like constantly like cutting herself and just the, the blood and Sukumoto's like bloody face. Oh yeah, it gets worse. But it's yeah. like the the idea of it is is that concept of taking someone who is having intrusive thoughts um, that are related to her depression and showing them all completely literally. Mm-hmm. Like even before the worst thing, you've already seen her go up to the top of a building with a child in her arms and just casually imagine dropping it off. And that um, that fantasy is shown to you with with no way of differentiating it from the film's reality. You have to wait until she goes back inside and realises the child is safe and she hasn't done anything to it before you have that reassurance. So, you know, it's going to be way too much for most people. But in terms of putting you right inside that mindset, it's unparalleled in my view. Oh, wow. Uh, ben, you know <laughs> I'm not, you know what, fuck it. All right. I wasn't sure how personal I was going to get with this because this film, had, I mean, I saw it originally like 10, what was it, 2011 it was released? Whenever yeah, they were released. I think it was I 2012, I yeah. Blu-ray, I remember getting it. Uh, and it did speak to me. And I know you're kind of making really valid comparisons there to Possession. One film certainly from recent history, it's kind of maybe a little bit on the nose was The Babadook to this mm-hmm, one mm-hmm. very yeah, much yeah. um but all right so from my point of view as someone who has self-harmed all his life as somebody who has attempted suicide as somebody who's been through those and deals with the mental health of these kind of things on a daily basis and the influence the outside world has upon them this spoke to me on, on quite a personal level on that talk i've brought everybody down now no i want no, this no, to be no, a conversation no no, no. no, no. I, I'm, I'm like this thank is you it. for sharing that because like honestly yeah. same like i was watching it and i was like i've never seen a film get that in the way that he yes. does um mm. and it's horrible that i think that's why we have such a visceral reaction to it because for those of us who have been there who have self-harmed who have wanted to kill themselves who have these intrusive thoughts where you know sometimes i'm like i'm gonna drink bleach Okay, I'm not, but, you know, it's in my head. I can't get it out. So to see it, I'm like, that is so brave to put that on screen. And, like, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. I'm, like, really thankful for him for doing that um, because not a lot of people go there. And it speaks to him as an individual as well. Mm -hmm. So, like, makes you question whether, and especially within a society, I mean, I don't necessarily understand Japanese society, but I do understand Chinese society because I've lived in China. I've got Chinese family. It's, It's one of those kind of ideas where, it's unspoken. You do not talk about it at any point in your deal. But this is why suicide rates are through the roof. They've got their own because, suicide you know, forest in that place. So yeah, it's a huge problem. Yeah, it's but I mean, it, it, but it is in places like Scandinavia as well. Mm-hmm. You know, because it isn't, and which taps into the idea of Sacred June, and, and I can see some like similarities between the two in the sense that these are things we do not talk about. Mm-hmm. And so, how are we supposed to get better if we don't talk about them? Yeah, absolutely. Weirdly, the only person in the media I've ever heard talk about this in this way is uh, Paul Abbott, the creator of uh, Shameless and State of Play, who said that he, he can manage his depression now, but he will just see a bridge and he will think, that would be a good bridge to jump off of. And there's you know, there's no intent in it. Mm-hmm. It's just the thought that comes in. And I, I have you know, I've had the same thing for many years. I've managed to quiet it down now, but I remember when my depression was really bad. I'm an absurdly non-violent person. I will run miles from a confrontation, but I would just be walking through the park and I would just see a kid and think, I could punch that kid. And and it just came into my head and it's... It's because you're trying to torment yourself with the thought of being a bad person so you can feel worse about yourself. And that's something that I think the the film captures extremely well. It gets you into that headspace where, you know, I, I knew that these thoughts were not literal. I knew they were not things that I wanted to do, but they were happening 
in a way that I couldn't stop. And I think the way that Sukamoto shocks you with the realism of the fantasy scenes in this is a way of getting you to understand what that feels like. Wow, okay. Hi, Bob. Good I, I, podcast, I, I, isn't it? I, I like I like the bit where the lady sings. It's a pretty song. <laughs> yeah, I will just have to put a content warning at the front of this, but this is all yeah. all, all fantastic. Um, Coco actually co-wrote this with uh, Sukamoto, so mm-hmm. she is, I think, pivotal in actually getting this story mm-hmm. out there. It's potentially uh, tangential with her story, so it takes a very brave creator to do that, really, especially in such a repressed and conservative society like japan is mm-hmm. i think it's also really brave going back to that babadook point which i think is a really good comparison is seeing a representation of pose well i i haven't had a child so obviously i'm not like i don't know for sure but this representation of what is clearly like postpartum depression and the very real terrifying intrusive thoughts that mothers have and there's the the like the social worker even says to Kotoko in the film, she's like, like motherhood isn't inherent. Like it's a myth that every mother comes into it knowing exactly what to do. And I really appreciate films that show that dark side of motherhood because it exists. And if people don't talk about it, then mothers who do feel like that are going to feel even fucking worse than they already do. So hmm. yeah, actually, I've got a funny story about that. as a parent of two, uh, one at university, one upstairs, currently going to bed. It, it's funny when you kind of speak to other parents and things like that, because there's this idea you're supposed to be the perfect parent. So when I sit there and say, you know what, actually playing toys, Hot Wheels with my son, it's boring. You know what? <laughs> it's just dull as dishwater. I say that to other parents. I'm a monster. Yeah. I'm like, no, uh, I'm a little bit beyond playing with Hot Wheels. Thank you very much. <laughs> you, you know? Yeah. So, it's you, you, yes, you do it because it's kind of there. But I'll be honest; after about half an hour, I'll be like, "Yeah, son, I can't do this no more." So I'm nearly fifty. I've got to get off the off the floor. Come on, my knees don't work like they used to. Come on. But I'm a monster. I'm I'm a bad parent, and you, you, because I'll say to it's like at the moment I won't let him get his haircut. I lost my hair when I was nineteen years old. I'm not going to tell him to get a haircut because he might not have it that much longer. If he doesn't want to, fine, because then from the age of like 20 onwards, he'll be like thinking about going, remember what it was like to have hair. I can't remember what it was like to have hair. I am that far removed from having hair. I have lived two lifetimes (laughs) since that point. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. What's flashing? Yeah. But no, it, it taps into that idea of being the ideal parent, of being a good parent, you, mm-hmm. especially women in the modern age. It's sort of like you're supposed to hold down a job. You're supposed to be the parent. You're supposed to be the cook. You're supposed to be this, that, and the other. And yet the standards of a previous generation are still inherently put on parents today, and particularly women. And it's bullshit. Yeah. I just take this opportunity to say this is a very left-leaning podcast. So if you're a right-leaning listener, I don't think this is the place. Oh yeah, no, I don't drink Bud Light. Sorry, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I don't drink. So you know, it's kind of... it, it speaks to his fearlessness, fearlessness really, though, doesn't it? I mean, he in Japan as well. He's probably tackled a lot of stigmas that I don't think any other director save Mika in the contemporary era when he just tried to break them all in that one movie. He's, he's, cube. He's, yes. he's just that sort of, yeah, that sort of guy. But you yeah. say that, and yet he's made how many kids' films has Takashi Miike made? He's very much he's a number, number, yeah. higher. Exactly. You know what I mean? For, out of 100 films, I'm very hit and miss when it comes to uh, hit and miss. Well, he is very hit and miss. Hit and miss. And yeah. miss I'd, I'd say about 25% of his films that I've seen, I've liked. Mm-hmm. It's like 113, I think he's got yeah, something. Yeah, he's so. up to that. They're now, not yeah. all going to be bangers that. when you turn out that many. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So one in four. It's, yeah. A few old-timers. So, yeah, like audition. Yeah. Nobody's coming on here and telling me the JoJo's, uh, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure movie was any good. <laughs> it's like those prolific directors. I know you never set it up, but it's like the prolific directors. Uh, Sion Sono's got a few like that. I think he did the Japanese high school bonus comedy. Like so. mm, not really, like no. Mm. I mean- Japan doesn't really, just clarity, he he's a bit of a sex pest with his female mm. cast. So, yeah, there's that. Yeah. And you can kind of tell some of us. I shouldn't laugh about it. Um, But yeah. Anyway, Sukamoto, great guy. 
by oh, he's a sweetheart, a yeah. Fundamentally generous guy as well. I mean, we've talked about his figurelessness, but we've also mentioned the fact that this isn't entirely his story. Mm. This is something personal that Coco came up to him with. And he thought, yeah, I will absolutely explore this as thoroughly as possible with you. I mean, if you adhere to a strict definition of author theory, which you shouldn't because that's not what it was about, but that's a different rant for another time. This is not an author piece. This is something that someone brought to him to direct, but there's an absolute conviction in it. Mm. No, there is. And and, and, and it's... (laughs) It really kind of taps into that, as I say, that idea. This is a very personal story. Out of all of his films, this is probably one of the most personal, and it's not even his story. Mm. Uh, and there it is. I mean, he helped, right? He co-wrote it with, with Coco. Um, but can I just ask as well, because I, I just kind of want to get on. I'm going to spoil the crap out of this movie now. At the end, mm. it was a beat where it kind of left it dangling as to what she was experiencing was real or not. Yeah. We so it wasn't just me then. That's good. <laughs> yeah, when the sun's come around to, to, to visit the mom, and she leaves, and there's a beat where she's standing at the window, and you don't see him for what feels like an eternity. And in a 90-minute movie, that few seconds is a lot. And I was kind of like, "Are we? is he really going to pull the rug out? And now, obviously, I'd seen it before, so I'd kind of known that. But seeing it this time, it really kind of like, that would have been a really brave kind of decision to cut it there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think what it ends up meaning, since he doesn't cut it there, is that you know th- things are all right mm. in air quotes, mm. but they're trying not going to leave gonna... it on a happy note, yeah, trying to leave also, it on a, a sense of redemption or a sense of hope. But also, just because things are all right doesn't mean they're going to be easy. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the the one of the really damaging myths about mental illness, particularly depression, is that there comes a time when the clouds completely lift and you have a perfectly happy time. And, you know, ultimately, even if you're living with it and coping with it, you are still managing it. You're still getting by day by day. You can still have relapses. You know, it's it's almost like an addiction in that sense. And I think... That's a really good way of, as you say, leaving the audience with some hope while also acknowledging that this isn't a fairy tale. You know, it's not false hope. No, but also as well, and this is a big one, uh, especially when it comes to like survivors of abuse and things like that, um, where it's this idea that children come out broken from that. And it's like, Mm. no. Is not. He seems to be living a good life. It would be interesting to revisit him five, ten, fifteen years from now to see where um, to see where he is in relation to her. Yeah, but that was it, and that was the beauty of this story. It kind of left me going like, I am interested in these people. I am invested in these as people. Yeah, and yeah. nothing more. Outside of the horror, outside of the extreme events that happened throughout this film, it was kind of like, I wonder where this would go. I wonder how his life, and I think that would be another interesting film if he ever wants to revisit this kind of idea, is how would this affect the son mm. going forward? I, I, I choose to believe that with the first time I watched it and – she gets told that he's there and we go in the room and he's not only there, but he's a happy, healthy looking boy. I fucking lost it. I burst into tears like immediately. And that's what I choose to like go with because yes, like you said, like he was massively abused by her as a baby. Hopefully he doesn't remember it. Um, So hopefully he's gone on to live with the aunt and have like a lovely life, but she doesn't get to, you know, she's still, she's still institutionalized for the rest of her life. Presumably she will Mm. be, Um, you know, she tried to kill her child. So it's really, it's really heartbreaking because like the thing about Kotoko that is, there is all this fantasy with the doubles and you know, that the, the cutesy bit at the end where like all the toys come to life, et cetera, but it's real. It's like a real story. It's a reality. It's Coco's reality. It's Kotoko's reality. It's Tsukamoto's reality. It's our reality. And I think to fantasize the ending would have like made it less powerful in a way. So mm-hmm. I, I think, you know, I, I like to think that Daijiro is there and living his life. And I would like to, you know, like you said, see how it was growing up for him. Um, not in a sequel that we don't no, no, but then maybe take that theme and, and move it on, sort of like somebody who's lived with that most of their lives. He is due another movie. His last one was Killing in 2018, so it's been a while. 
you know what? At this stage, he can do what he wants. Yeah, true. He, 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 honestly, I he, he can fart in a bag and I'd still go and see it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I guess let's just wrap up and talk about sort of Sukumar in a general sense. Um, there's two questions I'd really ask here about the sort of the strength of his filmography and if he was to retire today. Aside sort of the importance of um, Tetsuo, what's his legacy as a filmmaker? One of the modern greats. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know how he's viewed in Japan, but internationally, certainly, I, I don't think he gets the recognition as he had, because even though his cinema was seen as extreme, he wasn't sold on that extreme. It was sold on an idea. Whereas in somebody like Takashi Miki, he was very much sold in the West. Oh, look, you got audition, you got Ichi the Killer. And it was very much sold. On, and yet when you got into his filmography, it was kind of like, yeah, okay, these are kind of like the peaks. And there's a lot of props here. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And this is kind of where international distribution has been an editor for us over the years. We've only yeah. got what distributors thought they could sell rather than everything. Whereas in now, in, in an age of streaming, we are getting a lot more and a lot more and I'm certainly finding this with with Korean cinema not quite up to the quality, and certainly not after the uh, the quota slash. But don't get me started on that because we'll be here all day. Um, but yeah, no, he's one of the modern greats. I think he brought Japanese cinema back into focus at a time when it was probably at its lowest internationally. Okay, you know, say it's still very much as I said earlier, very much living off its past. And yet brought it right up to a modern era and put it into a context where it could compete with American movies, certainly American genre movies and things like that. The comparisons to David Cronenberg never end, even though I think those two directors have gone very, very different paths. It's, yeah, no, he's one of the greats as far as I'm concerned. Okay. Um, Amber? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen, I'm still working my way through his, his filmography. And I, I think I've seen four or five of his films and they've all been amazing. And, you know, like we, we were talking about Mieke, like and other directors, there are duds, there are duds. And I'm sure I might come to a Sukumoto dud at one point, but I also don't think I will. Like, I feel like even his like worst film I'm going to enjoy because there's just something that he gets about the human experience. Like he takes it to these really, you know, the body horror in Tetsuo, the body horror in Kotoko to an extent, but it all comes back to these very basic human fears and human desires. And it's a lot of his work is very existential and nihilistic. And I love that. But there's also like hope in a lot of his films, like, you know, Kotoko's ending is very sad, but it's, you know, there's, there's hope there. And, you know, even Tetsuo, there's, is a romantic gay love story between two metal men who are in love. So I think <laughs> like he he just he just really understands the human condition in a way that I haven't seen a lot of filmmakers do it, with sincerity and I'm really excited to keep going with his work because I'm just I feel like I've got like a journey ahead of me. I can't wait. Absolutely. So from the opposite end of the spectrum, Graham, as the first two movies you've seen from him, um yeah, absolutely. And yeah, as Amber said, a journey is what I'm expecting for the rest of this. I think, you know, you can't generalize too much about a director you've only seen two movies from, particularly when they've had a very long career. But what you can do is look at something like Kotoko and say, that was made 22 years after Tetsuo. You know, how many other directors over two decades into their career are making something that is as raw and uncompromised and full of purpose as that? It's not a long list, is it? And I think no, absolutely. it shows that if it, if it comes down to a choice between you know, ha having to accept perhaps slightly lesser resources or make slightly more rough-edged films and diluting his vision and his, his particular sort of beliefs about what the film should be, he'll always choose the latter. And, you know, th there's never been a situation in film history where you can take those guys for granted. There's always going to be, you know, not enough directors like that to go around. So, yeah, I'm hugely excited for what I'm going to watch next for him. Well, his background is a DIY filmmaker, isn't it? Um, yeah. His early movies on 8mm and 16mm, much of Tetsuo was just him and the, the co-star because everybody else had left. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's just him and his mates. That's it, yeah. He 
you can take the film industry out of Japan, but you'll never be able to stop it. It's a lot of making movies, I don't think. <laughs> and uh, he's just a sweetheart as well. It goes to my theory that the people who make Disney movies are the people you can't trust, and it's the people who make really, really messed up movies. Yeah. They're, they're the good true. guys. Very they're true. the good guys. Um, I think that about covers it, really. Um, for Shinya Sukamoto, uh, coming up next time, we have the first of two episodes that lead out the end of season two with Ben Waitley. So that should be fun, I think. I'm getting I think so, yeah. I didn't put myself down for these because this is one of the ones where like, I opened up the spreadsheet where we plan these things and there were already about 200 people <laughs> on this. And I'm, okay, okay, maybe you don't need me on this one, but I'm hugely looking forward to it as a listener. Ah, yes, absolutely. Um, okay, so places we can find you online. Graham, where can we find you? Well, I'm the host of the Geek Show's uh, podcast Pop Screen, where we look at movies starring pop stars that are often less harrowing than the one we've just reviewed. It would count as an episode. It would count as an episode, and, you know, in a way, wasn't reviewing that movie, Sia, directed, also very harrowing for me as well, in a very different way. You've done moonwalking, you've paid your penance. (laughs) I've I've committed self-harm for this fucking podcast, yes. Um, (laughs) As well as that, I write for uh, the Geek Show regularly. I write for Horrified, British horror website, Byline Times, We Are Cults. I make short films and write inlay booklets for Second Run. And you can find me on my regularly updated letterboxd. I have other social medias, but let's face it, they're all shit compared to that, Uh, just by searching for Graham Williamson. Okay, excellent. Check out all those places. Ben, yourself? You can't, and you never will. My name is Ben Jones. Good luck finding me. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's uh, pretty much just on Twitter, sharing what I'm watching next, uh, which is Comrade Samurai and uh, on Letterboxd, and that's pretty much and I write for The Geek Show, and I do things like this, and that's it. Hmm. Amber? Um, you can find me everywhere at Hornblood Fire. Uh, you can listen to my podcast of the same name. Um, I am UK correspondent for Fangoria, so I write the, the good news over there and also write for Arrow and Ghouls Magazine, so you can find all of that good stuff in my link tree, which is somewhere on the internet because I deleted my Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> A very good choice of mental health. <laughs> Um, okay so that has been it for this episode of Directors Uncut and we will see you next time with Ben Wheatley <laughs> <laughs>